Hey, good morning, y'all. Good to see you. My name is Andrew. I get to serve as lead pastor here. I'm just thankful you're here today. Hey, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Let me ask you right out of the gate, how many of you are all going to watch the Super Bowl tonight? Some of you? How many of you are like, I could care less? Or maybe I'm just going to watch for the commercials, right? No judgment here uh, unless you're only tuning in to to see Taylor Swift. There may be a little bit of judgment, a little bit of judgment. All right, Super Bowl Sunday. I can't come through a Super Bowl Sunday without thinking of uh, my pastor back in the day, Pastor Mark. He would, he would talk about how every Sunday was like Super Bowl Sunday for him because he got to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, the gospel. And so uh, I think about that every, every time this day rolls around. What an incredible day, too, that we get to on Super Bowl Sunday, uh, baptize seven folks. I'm really excited for that. Uh, I don't know if, if I planned that or if God just planned that. Cool for that to land on this day. Uh, way better than any Taylor Swift concert or any, you know, uh, 49ers pounding the Chiefs. I'm praying for. Uh, <laughs> uh, baptism, way better, way better. Seven people proclaiming their faith in Jesus. Uh, man, so excited for uh, this day. We have been in this series. This is a 12-week series called Knowing God's Truth. Uh, it is an introduction to systematic theology, and it is based off of a book of the same name called Knowing God's Truth. We have, I think, six copies over uh, at Next Steps. If you're interested, suggest a donation of $10, but if you, if you don't have that, just grab one. We'd love for you to have that. Uh, I met with a pastor this past week, uh, an older pastor, much more mature than, than me uh, in all the ways, and uh, I told him, hey, we're going through a, a series in systematic theology, and I thought... His response was going to be, oh, wow, I'm impressed. Young whippersnapper going through like systematic theology. But you know what his response was? I said, hey, we're going through systematic theology. And he goes, oh, boy, yay. <laughs> it's like, wow, I thought to get, I was going to score some points, some credibility. Uh, but no, he thought, wow, that sounds boring. Uh, I hope that's not y'all's response every week when I tell you that we're going through this. Uh, Systematic theology, you know, um, theology should be accessible. It should be understandable. It should be uh, impactful. And, you know, theology simply means words uh, about God. We all have thoughts about God, words about God. We all have, we are all theologians in a sense. Uh, Systematic theology is just organizing or systematizing uh, the different topics and doctrines and teachings in Scripture uh, in an organized kind of fashion uh, into categories. And so far in these first five weeks, we've talked about uh, what is theology, what is Scripture, who is God, uh, what is man, and also last week, Jake took us through what is sin. And so that was uh, what we were looking at last week. So as we kind of start out this morning, let me ask you a question. Uh, actually, let me have you think about somebody in your life, maybe someone who's currently in your life or someone uh, who is no longer with us, who you love dearly, you love deeply. Think about that person. And if someone who didn't know them, uh, if you were to describe them to this person who didn't know them, how would you do that? How would you describe that person that you love dearly? Uh, you might talk about their, their role in your life. Right? You might talk about their personality, uh, their character. Uh, maybe you would uh, talk about what they, what they do. Uh, maybe you would probably get pretty, um, you know, you talk about how, what they mean to you. So maybe for some that you'd get emotional about talking about this person or thinking of this person. There's so much to say, right? It, it's so hard to in, encapsulate all there is to say about, about a person in, in a, little bit, uh, a little bit of time. 
Uh, that is the same dilemma that we're facing this morning as we attempt to answer this question, week number six. The question is, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? And again, I think, man, what perfect timing that on Super Bowl Sunday, the Sunday of all Sundays, we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and so this is the question we're going to attempt to answer this morning. I want to invite you to uh, open your Bible if you have a Bible. If you don't have one, uh, we have Bibles in the seat backs, uh, actually in the book rack right in front of you. Uh, you can grab one. If you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, I would invite you to take that as our gift to you. We would love for you to have that. Uh, invite you to turn to Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, on the screen, you'll also see a page number uh, in the bottom right-hand corner as we go through this. If you want to keep uh, keep up with us uh, in that Bible in front of you. Uh, mine is on page 1654, uh, but 6, 1202 is the page in your Bible. Uh, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to do something a little different this morning. Normally we read through a passage of scripture together, uh, and I have you all stand with me, and I'll have you do that in a moment. Actually, if you're already there, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to read through three passages this morning. We're going to start in Colossians 1. We're going to backtrack just a couple pages into Philippians uh, chapter 2, and then we'll backtrack about 20 pages into 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and so we're going to read all three of these passages that I think are great, uh, and there's many, many passages we could look to in the New Testament that speak to the person and the work of Jesus. Uh, I've, I've chosen these three to kind of encapsulate uh, the life and the, the work of Jesus. So Colossians 1, we're going to start in verses 15, work through verses 15 through 20. This is God's word, it is truth, and it is life. Here is what the word says in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, if you'll go to Philippians chapter 2, if you just go to your left a couple pages, we're going to read Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Here Paul says, starting in verse number 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if you go back to your left a little bit further to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to read uh, six more verses here. This chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, is all about the resurrection of Christ. Verses 20 through 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, says this, But in fact, 
Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the res- uh, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is God's word. Amen. And Lord, we thank you so much for the truth of your word that reveals to us, uh, Lord, our condition before you. We saw last week that we are sinners uh, in need of your grace. And Lord, we're grateful that your word doesn't leave us there with the bad news of our sin, but it reveals to us also the good news of your grace, the fact that we are reconciled to you by the blood of your cross. And God, this morning we get to see that put on display through these seven uh, students and kids and adults who are proclaiming uh, through uh, baptism, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, the gospel. God, we're grateful for the gospel today that brings us together. Lord, we're thankful for Jesus. I pray that as we seek to, uh, at least in the little bit of time that we have this morning, to answer and explore this question, God, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you... Help us, those of us who have heard about Jesus and know about Jesus and have for years, God, would you help us to see and understand and appreciate the love and the grace and the mercy of our Savior this morning in a fresh new way. And Lord, I do pray for anyone who's in here that does not know you. Uh, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that you would reveal the Lord Jesus to them and his incredible grace. And so, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you move us? Would you change us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all have a seat? Thank you for standing today. So we're answering this question, who is Jesus Christ? We've been working through a framework that I've been using through the course of this series, head, heart, and hands. So theology can tend to be very academic, very heady, very uh, knowledge-based, but we want to make sure that it doesn't just impact our, our, our heads. We do want to think rightly about God, uh, but we want to make sure that it impacts our hearts, right? our affections, our desires, our passions, and ultimately that flows out through our hands and our actions and a life of, of faith and obedience. So we're working through each of these in kind of that, that order. Today, we're going to start with, again, head, some things that we need to know about Jesus as we attempt to answer this question. So there's, there's a lot of things that we could consider. Uh, we could this morning consider his titles uh, in Scripture. In the New Testament, there are many, many titles of Jesus. Uh, this is just kind of fun fact, but three most prominent ones used in the New Testament. Number one would be Christ, uh, which I don't know if you know this. Uh, Christ is not the last name of Jesus. All right? It is his title. It means Messiah. He is the Messiah, uh, the, the Redeemer. So Christ is number one on the list. Number two is Lord. Uh, that is used second most often of Jesus in the New Testament. Number three is Son of Man, which is actually the title that Jesus uses most frequently of, of himself. And so Christ, Lord, Son of Man. We could talk about his titles. We could this morning talk about his offices. Uh, so he fulfills three major offices. He is our prophet. He is our priest. 
He is our king. So those are some, some things we could talk about, but the way that I'm going to divide this up today is really into two large kind of categories or considerations, his person and his work, his person and his work. So we're going to start out with the person of Christ. Who is, who is Jesus? And really two big things that we need to, to know this morning about who Jesus is. He is fully God and fully man. He is fully God and he is fully man. So let's talk about the fact that he is fully God. He has existed eternally as the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has existed eternally as the second person of, of the Godhead, the, the three in one. He was active in creation. We saw that in Colossians chapter 1, verse number 16. Let me read it again. Paul says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus was active in, in creation. This, 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 again, shows his, his deity, that he is divine, he is God. Uh, and as God, he is able to save us from our sins. If he was not God, he could not save us from our sins. So Jesus was fully God, and yet at the very same time, he was fully man. He was fully man. When we speak about the humanity of Jesus, here's a term I want to mention this morning. We talk about his incarnation, his incarnation that at a point in time, though he existed for all of eternity, there was a point in time where he took on flesh, where he became a man. And so Jesus uh, is God in the flesh, God incarnate. And he, he died on the cross. We'll talk about that here in a moment. He was buried literally physically, his physical body. And then he rose physically. He has a body. A, now he has a resurrected, glorified body. And he will have a resurrected, glorified body body forever, right? So he's existed for all of eternity, but there was a point in time where he took on flesh and became a man. And as a man, the Bible tells us, this is so important, he is able to sympathize with us as human beings. He's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but One, speaking of Jesus, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, read these next three words with me, yet without sin. So fully God, fully man. He has no sin nature. He has no sin. He was completely without sin. If you are familiar with the Christmas story, he was born of a virgin. So he had no earthly father, no human father, uh, and, and so the sin nature wasn't passed down to him. The Holy Spirit caused Mary to be born, uh, to, uh, to be uh, pregnant with, with Jesus. So there was no sin nature that was passed down to Jesus. But he also chose to live his life completely free of sin. Not once did he sin. And yet, as a man, he is able to sympathize. He understands our temptations. He understands our weaknesses. And so this, this dual nature, 
Jesus was fully God, fully man. Let me introduce you to uh, another theological term. I'm not going to drop any Latin phrases on you this morning. Some of you are like, thank you. All right. uh, these are all English terms. Here is the theological phrase, though. This is called the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. That's a big phrase. It just means he has a dual nature. He is fully God and fully man, 100% God, 100% man. He wasn't 50-50, right, or 70%, 30%, or any combination. He was fully God, fully man. And this is, this is a, a doctrine that has spawned very many heresies, right? There's a lot of, 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 of heresy, wrong teaching about this, that maybe he was... Uh, a created being, that God created him, uh, or maybe that he uh, wasn't really a man, he only appeared as a man, or he wasn't fully God, but uh, there's all these heresies. I want to read you this quote from uh, Jen Wilkin and J.T. English from their book, You Are a Theologian. It says this, These common misconceptions still populate the pews today to varying degrees as every generation of believers tries to resolve the tension of the dual nature of Christ. Heresy, I thought this is an important statement, heresy always seeks to resolve the tension that orthodoxy maintains. Like this is a long-standing orthodox Christian belief that, that he is fully God, fully man. Heresy always seeks to resolve this tension that orthodoxy maintains. Jesus is fully God, fully man in one person. So one person with two natures. This is, this is the, the person of Christ, fully God, fully man. All right, so that is the person of Christ. Let's talk about the work of Christ, the work of Christ. And I'm going to cover this in, and there, again, there's so much, y'all, there's so much content we could cover, and we're so limited on time, and so I'm trying to give you an overview of the person and the work of Christ. I want to cover the work of Christ in past, present, future, all right, past, present, future. So let's talk about his past work, and we're going to talk about that as far as his life his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And we need to understand the work of Christ in, in the past. So let's talk about his life. He, we already talked about he was born of a virgin. He was without sin. He was without a sin nature. He lived a life that was, uh, that was perfectly obedient to the Father. He was completely pleasing to his Father in heaven. He lived... Listen, he lived the life that you and I were created to live, perfectly pleasing to God the Father without any sin whatsoever. That was the life that he lived for us. His death, we talk often about his suffering in his death. Jesus died in our place to atone for our sin. See, our sin separates us from God. We talked all about that last week that we, 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 there's nothing we could do to remove our sin, to cleanse ourselves of our sin. We needed someone outside of ourselves, a perfect God, to do something with our sin. And so Jesus, as, as fully God, came and he died our death in our place. He took the, the punishment that our sin deserves in our place in order to pay the price for our sin. Here's another theological term. This, I think, may be the last one I'll introduce to you this morning. It is the term substitutionary atonement. 
substitutionary atonement. We all understand what a substitute is, right? Someone who kind of stands in our place that fills in uh, for us. And Jesus was our substitute. That had Jesus not gone to the cross to take the punishment for our sins, we would have to stand in that place. We would have to absorb the wrath of God upon our life. And yet Jesus was our substitute. He died in our place. He atoned for our sin, which no amount of good works or good deeds or religious activity could ever do. It could never atone for our sin. Baptism that's going to take place in a few minutes, being dunked in water, that cannot cleanse you of your sin. Coming to church, reading your Bible, praying, those things are are good, but they, they do not save you from your sin. Only the blood of Christ through his death can save you from your sin. So substitutionary atonement, so, so important. Uh, let me read to you 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. This is really an en- encapsulation of the great exchange that our, our youth talked about during our, our D-Now weekend. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see this exchange? Jesus, who knew no sin, took on our sin so that we could take on his righteousness. This is what his death accomplished. So his life, his death, his, his burial. Y'all, sometimes we skip over, over the burial part of, of Jesus, right? But this is so important because what happened was that Jesus was, was laid in a tomb with all of, of our sin. With all of our sin, he took it into the grave. And he was, make no mistake about it, fully dead. He was fully dead. Do I have any fans of the movie uh, The Princess Bride in the room? Anybody like that old classic? Oh, I love The Princess Bride. So you may remember, there's, there's a part in that story where the hero, whose name was Wesley. Okay, I'm seeing who the real fans were. On the ball, Wesley. Right, he is presumed dead. And so his, his, his friends, his comrades, what, uh, Finnick and Anigo, take him to Miracle Max. They're looking for a miracle. What do they want Miracle Max to do? They want him to raise Wesley from the dead, right? And so, uh, so there's a statement, there's a declaration that Miracle Max makes over, over Wesley. He says, he is mostly dead, right? And he says... There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead, right? He says, mostly dead is slightly alive. And he says, all dead means there's only one thing usually you can do. Go through his pocket for loose chains, right? He's, he, he's not fully dead. He's, he's only mostly dead. So Jesus, when he went into the grave, he was not mostly dead. He, he wasn't needing to be resuscitated, He was fully dead. He needed to be resurrected. He needed a miracle. And that is what God did in his resurrection. He rose uh, Jesus from the dead. He resurrected him. He did not resuscitate him. He he, he rose Jesus from the dead. Jesus left our sin in the grave. And he rose victorious over sin and Satan and death. He rose in triumph over that through his his resurrection. Listen, the cross was 100% necessary to, to pay for our sin. 
And yet we needed the resurrection in order to experience life. Jesus had to go into the grave and he needed to be resurrected. We saw in 1 Corinthians 15, and you could see throughout that whole chapter, if he was still on the cross or if he was still in the grave, we would still be dead in our sins. I had a really kind of interesting question. I thought it was a cool question. Hey, why don't we, this past week, why don't we have crosses on display in our church. I'm not against displaying crosses. Uh, I love the cross. I, I glory in, in the cross. Uh, and yet, uh, we need a Savior who is not still on the cross or is not still in the grave. We need a Savior who is risen from the dead. Amen? In victory over our sin. So my question isn't necessarily, why don't we have crosses? My question is, why don't we have empty tombs on the walls? Right, and hanging around our necks because that is where our faith lies. If, if all he did was die, man, every other human being has died or will die. He is one who rose from the grave in victory over sin and death and Satan. And so life, death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension. And again, this is another part of his life and his work that we don't always think about, that he he, he ascended to the Father. So the scriptures tell us in, in Acts chapter 1 that he spent 40 days uh, among the living, the resurrected, glorified Christ. He was teaching about the kingdom of God. And then Acts 1 describes how he was caught up. He was taken up into the clouds in the exact same way that he will one day return. He ascended to the Father Uh, to the Father's right hand. And the ascension is a reminder for us that Jesus, again, he is not dead, he is not in the grave, he is alive and he is active and he is exalted. So I remember when I was in high school, I was probably, I think, a freshman in high school. Uh, My mom, who is from Vietnam, was, was going back to her home country for the first time in about 20 years. And, uh, and I remember before she went, she asked, she said, hey, uh, I can get jewelry pretty cheap when I go back, so is there anything y'all want? Uh, she didn't say y'all because we weren't from the South. Uh, <laughs> similar translation. You guys, right? What, anything y'all want? You guys want? <sighs> I, I'm, I'm officially Southern. I can't stop saying y'all. Uh, anything you guys want? Uh, and I said, hey, I would love a, like a gold chain, a gold necklace with a cross. Now, I didn't grow up going to church knew really nothing about Jesus, but I just thought, I don't know what I thought. It'll be a good luck charm. Maybe God will look on me with favor if I have a cross hanging around my neck, right? So uh, I asked my mom to bring me back a a cross. Uh, And so she brought back a gold necklace with a crucifix. Now, if you don't know the difference, uh, a crucifix, uh, a cross is, is just a cross, empty. Crucifix has Jesus still hanging on the cross. And so uh, she brought that back, and I wore it. Uh, it, was, it was a little creepy to me, to be honest, um, but I, didn't, I really didn't, didn't know anything uh, about it. Uh, but when I think about that, and, and, and you know, this is common in, in Roman Catholic churches, uh, to, to see Jesus still on the cross, and yet the Jesus that we know from Scripture, the Jesus that we worship, is not still on the cross. If he was, we would still be dead in our sins. But he died for our sins. He was buried and he was resurrected and they ascended to the Father. This is, this is the work of Jesus. 
past tense. Let's talk about his present work. Because sometimes we think about the work that he did previously. He died for my sins. Hallelujah. He ascended. But that's kind of it. Now he's just hanging out, waiting to, to come back, right? No, no he's, he's still active. He still has a, a very present ministry. Uh, and, and so let me talk about that for, for just a minute. He is seated, the Bible tells us over and over, at the Father's right hand. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 13 say it this way. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So he didn't remain on the cross. He didn't remain in the grave. He offered the sacrifice. He was resurrected. He ascended, and he now is seated at the right hand of, of God. Why is that important that he's, that he's seated? Well, if you all have ever had a long day of, at work, what's the first thing you want to do when you come home? You just want to... Sit down, right? You just want to plant your behind and just chill, right? Because that was hard work. But now the work is what? It's done. It's finished. Now is the time to rest. And Jesus, he did all the work necessary to save us from our sins. And when he was finished making that one sacrifice for all time, he sat down saying, it is finished. It's done. There's nothing you can do, nothing I could do, nothing else that needed to be done to save us from our sin. The work is complete. So we see it at the right hand of God. He is now mediating or interceding or, you know, the Bible also calls him our, our advocate, which means, you know, a, a mediator is one who is kind of a go-between, someone who is reconciling or bringing agreement between two parties. And so as Jesus is at the right hand of, of the Father, he's advocating for us. He's our mediator. He is, he is reminding God the Father. Look at, hey, listen, when you see that sin, like, remember, I paid the price for his sin. I paid the price for her sin. He's always reminding the Father of the work that he's already done to pay for our sin. So he's, he's mediating on our behalf. Uh, Romans 8, verse 34. We saw this a few months ago in our series in Romans 8. It says this, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So he did an incredible work for us on the cross and through his resurrection. But y'all, he's still doing a work for us. He's still interceding on our behalf to the Father. And here's a third thing when it comes to his present ministry. He is waiting to return. There is coming a day when he will return, when he will judge the world. We'll see that in just a moment. But let me show you 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Every single one of us should be so grateful for the truth of, of this verse. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Like we would say, well, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? And is he just slow? Is he just taking his time? Why is he, why is he taking so long? Right? It's kind of that feeling we get when we're sitting in traffic, like, why is this taking so long? Right? Sometimes we go, why is it taking so long for Jesus to come back and make all wrongs right and to do away with all sin? Why is he taking so long? Peter says this, he's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know the, the reason why Jesus is taking so long? He's hoping more and more people will come to repentance. He's looking at your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your child, your friend, your coworker, your neighbor, who has not yet put their faith in Jesus. And he's waiting. He is, he is hoping that they will come to faith in him. He is waiting for their repentance. And that is why he is patiently waiting for the day that he would return, giving every person the opportunity to know him. That is his present ministry. All right, let's talk about for just a minute his, his future ministry. What is coming? Well, we've already kind of alluded to it. He will return to judge the world. He will return to judge all the world and all of the sin that is in the world and in every single human. Acts 17, verse, verses 30 and 31, it says this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Repent just means turn away from your sin. Turn away from the way that you're walking, from going your own way, your own wisdom, your own strength. Turn to the Lord. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn towards God. He's commanded everyone, all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Speaking of, of Jesus and of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He will return to judge the world one day. He will judge the world one day and he will reign for all of eternity. He will reign for all of eternity. And when we could look in the book of Revelation, we could look in so many places here, but I love it. To, to me, I just think of the phrase, the title, King of Kings. What's the rest? Lord of Lords. He's going to come. He's going to be the king over all. He is the king over all. And one day he will return. He will make all things right. He will restore things to the way that he originally intended them. He will reign for all of eternity. This is his future work. Okay, so whew, that's a lot of stuff, right? The, the person, the work of Christ. That's, that's all stuff we need to know. We need to understand those things to think rightly about Jesus. But how do we live in light of this? How should this impact us, our heart in our hands? Let me just spend a couple minutes kind of wrapping this up, talking about our heart and our hands. So when it comes to our heart, let me ask you this question for your consideration, all right? What is, in light of all the stuff that we've seen about his person and his work, what is the most appropriate response to the person and the work of Christ? What is it? What is the most appropriate response for any human being to the person and the work of Jesus? It's worship, right? It is to worship him. It is to worship this one that created us. He is the one who created all things and he's created all things, including us for him, for his purpose, for his glory. He has seen our condition before him. He has seen our sinfulness, our need for redemption. And he has paid the price in order to do away with our sin, to cleanse us, to forgive us of our sins so that we could know God the Father so that when he comes to judge the world of its sin and every human being, every sinner, 
We don't face that judgment because the Son of God has already received the judgment and the wrath we deserve. The only appropriate response is worship. It's for us to, to, to fall before him in worship. I want you all to turn with me to this, this last passage, Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, I just want to read verses 9 through, through 12. Uh, it is on page 1255 if you're using the Bible in front of you. Let me set the scene for a moment. This is the scene. It's a scene in heaven as John, uh, the revelator, is writing this vision he has of the way things will shake out in the end. And John is seeing the scene unfold in heaven where there is, there is uh, one on the throne who has a scroll, and that scroll is sealed by seven seals. That scroll, within the scroll, what, what you'll see throughout Revelation is it, is it speaks of, it appears to contain a record of, of the judgments of God, all the judgments that must take place before Jesus can return and finally fully establish his kingdom. And so they're, 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 they're looking for someone who is, who is able to or worthy to open the scroll and so they're calling out, they're saying, who is worthy to open the scroll? And they're finding no one who is worthy to open the scroll. And, and John, it says, he begins to weep loudly because there's no one who's worthy to open the scroll to reveal the judgments that need to take place. All the stuff that Jesus has to do before he can return and finally establish his kingdom. And John begins to weep loudly. And then... It says that one comes who is as a lamb who was slain, who comes. And they see that this one who is like a lamb slain, he is, uh, let me look at it in Revelation chapter 5. Let me turn there. Revelation chapter 5, it says, one of the elders said, this, this won't be on the screen, but I'm just backing up to verse 5. Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And what you find is, is that many, many people begin to cry out, worthy, worthy is this one to open the scroll. Revelation 5, I want to read verses 9 through 12. Here is the declaration of all in heaven. It says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I, John says, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It's as if the host of heaven can't stop proclaiming his, his, his worth. They're crying out that he is his worthy. He is worthy. The chorus of heaven proclaims that he is, is worthy. Y'all know what, what the word worship means? It comes from an old English term, worth-ship. 
worship. Let me read you this quote from Tim Keller. The word worship is from Old English worship, the ascribing of, of highest worth, whatever you value or love the most, whatever is your greatest source of significance and security. You are worshiping that in your heart. Worship in church is, du- is just an expression of that. So our hearts, well, what is our response? It's, it's worship. What do we do in worship? Well, most of us, when we think of worship, we think, well, we sing, right? And, and absolutely, that should come out of our heart, a heart of worship. We should sing to the Lord, but that is simply an expression of, of worship. What is ultimately what's behind worship? What is, what is the heart of worship? Well, the heart of worship is bow your knee and confess his lordship. It's to bow your knee and to confess his lordship. Listen, we, we saw it Philippians 2. There is coming a day when Jesus returns, when every knee will bow. Listen, think, think of that. Every single knee of every single human being is going to bow before Jesus. And it says that every tongue will confess. Listen, every single human tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And so here's my deduction, y'all. The best thing is to start now voluntarily from a heart of adoration and awe. Because listen, there is coming a day where you will bow your knee and you will confess with your tongue that he is the Lord. But if you don't do that now, it's not gonna be fun to do that on the other side. And y'all, Jesus who loves you and created you, he is patiently waiting for you to right now, here on this earth, in this life, bow your knee before him and confess that he is Lord. And so for some of you, maybe there's one or or dozen of you here this morning that maybe you've never in your life bowed your knee before him. You'd say, I know all this, I know stuff about Jesus. I've heard about him, but I've never like literally, like think of this, like submitted my life to him. I've never confessed, God, you are Lord. I'm not Lord, I'm not boss anymore, you are Lord. Maybe for some of you, for the very first time, you would confess him as Lord today. This is what we call salvation. He would save you from your sins in that moment when you put your faith in him. But listen, from that very first moment of salvation, for maybe many of us that know Jesus as Lord, we have at at one point in our life bowed our knee before him, confessed him as Lord. Listen, y'all, that is not a one-time deal. That should be in every time, all the time, every area of our life. Bow your knee and confess his lordship. And so for you, maybe this morning, the way that that this plays out in your response to the Lord is maybe there's an area of your life in which you need to simply bow your knee and confess that he is Lord. You're like, God, I don't know. I've been trying to do this. I've been trying to figure this out. I've been trying to understand this. I've been trying to power through this. I've been trying to do my best. Maybe this morning you need to just bow your knee and confess that he is Lord over every area of your life. And so whatever it is, I want to invite you. Why don't you stand with me? And as we stand, would you bow your heads and 
just close your eyes and would you take one minute between you and the Lord? I don't know what it is, but would you respond to him from your heart? Would you, if it's coming from your heart, would you declare from your heart to him that he is worthy? to all that you have revealed to us about who you are, your person, all that you have done, your, your work. The only appropriate response for us is to worship you, to declare your worth. And so, Lord, I pray that every single person in this room would be able to do that with honesty and integrity from their heart, declare that you are worthy. God, I pray for the one here this morning that maybe has never bowed their knee to you, has never confessed you as Lord. God, I pray that today would be the day that they would humble themselves and receive the, the gift of your grace and your mercy by which we have redemption. And so, Lord, I pray for every single one of us that do know you. I pray that, Lord, if there's an area of your life, if there's any corner of our soul or our heart, our inner man, our inner woman that has not bowed our knee and confessed your lordship over a certain area of our life, God, would you reveal it to us? Help us to repent and turn to you this morning in worship. Lord, we believe it is truly all about Christ, it is all about the gospel. You are the center of our lives. You are the center of our church. You are the foundation upon which we build our church and our lives. And so God, this morning we declare that you are worthy. You, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, you are worthy of our praise. We love you and we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.